but I'll just say, a room like this to talk sure. about mental health is the stuff that my dreams are made of and my worst nightmares. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> the other one that was on mental well, health was like this too, and she said the exact same thing. Well, this is not what we do. We talk one on one with people, little small groups, and there's a lot of them. So, um, but it really is good to be here today. As Clay said, mental health is something I'm really passionate about. Teacher mental health really came on my radar recently because I've only been in the school system. This is the beginning of my third year. Um, but it actually was a situation at the CEA convention last year that really put it to the forefront of my mind. And we'll get to that story a little bit later on. Um, but first I will say, I know there are a lot of feelings about professional development, about training, so whatever you're feeling, it's okay. And at least you get sketches. So sit tight, we'll get to the end. Um, the other thing I read recently, um, there was a quote by Dave Stewart, and he said that bad PD is an affront to the human soul. So no pressure. I will try my very best not to be an affront to your soul. Um, hopefully we can gather some other good things out of it too. But we're going to set the bar low. At least it won't be that. Um, so today what we're going to look at is both some statistics about where teacher mental health is, why those things are important and we need to be paying attention to it. We're going to talk about some basic mental health psychoeducation, as we call it, in the mental health field. Um, and then also talk a bit about faith and mental health because I think in our faith communities and our Christian circles, that's a really critical part of the conversation as well. And then hopefully time for questions too. So teacher mental health, what is it like teaching right now? I think that shows one picture. The attendance today shows another picture, um, but so do statistics. And so a little over a year ago, the Rand Corporation did a survey and they found 78% of teachers were experiencing frequent high job-related stress. One in five felt they weren't coping very well with that stress, and 50% of teachers were feeling burned out, and 27% were feeling actual clinical symptoms of depression. And so that is a lot of struggling people. And it's important for several different reasons. One, for the profession, for individual schools, and then also for each of you individually. Now when we think about schools, in that same survey they found 25% of teachers, and keep in mind this was about a year and a half ago, but 25% of teachers either were likely or very likely to leave the profession within the year. They found that 54% were either somewhat or very likely to leave within the next two years. Principals were not faring better. They were hitting at about 38% that were planning to leave within the next three years. What we're seeing right now is sort of the middle of that time frame. And I think, unfortunately, some of what those surveys were showing have kind of come to fruition. When you look at, if any of you wanted a different job at a different school, you could probably get it. There's a lot of openings, a lot of staff shortages, um, and simply as a profession, we cannot afford to be losing that many educators. And so the alarms were sounding and continuing to sound, and we need to be listening, because that's it's not sustainable. In terms of individ individual schools, however, um, obviously staffing is a big issue, but let's just say none of those people actually do leave. But having over 50% of your people no longer wanting to be there, that's not healthy either. So whether they stay or go, it's not a good situation for schools. When we're thinking 
also about teacher mental health. It impacts attendance, it impacts job performance. All of those things obviously aren't good for schools if teachers aren't doing well. The other thing, I'm gonna say carefully, but let me finish the whole thought before you come at me. Um, teacher mental health also impacts student behavior. Now, having said that, 100% I'm not saying that your mental health is the cause of all student behavior. That's not it at all. Um, but what we do know is that students, even high school students, are still learning to regulate their own emotions, their own mental health, their own learning. And when they're doing that, especially if they're becoming dysregulated, they're looking at the people around them, trusted adults, for connection and cues about how to do that. And so when teachers aren't available for that connection because of their own mental health, students often return to increasingly negative or difficult ways of trying to seek what they need. And so classroom situations get dicey. And again, it's not all teachers' fault. That is not what I'm saying at all. But when we're essentially as humans in two states, we're in connection mode or protection mode. And so when we ourselves are in protection mode, the other way that that gets difficult is, as you know, teaching's hard enough as it is. Managing all the behaviors, micromanaging things, multitasking decisions, all the things that are constantly happening. But if you and yourself are in protection mode, that frontal cortex starts to slow down. It's not thinking quite as clearly. Um, and what ends up happening is feeling more irritable, feeling more stressed, more reactive, and we're just not handling things the way we typically would have if we were functioning really well. Those things are important. <coughs> but just for the point of this point, forget about the profession, forget about your school. You deserve to be well for you. Period. That's the full yes. sentence. You deserve to feel well for you. We all have lives outside of school. We have families, we have communities, we have churches, we have all the other things that make up our lives, and we deserve to be well for all of those and for you yourself. And so, again, our minds and our bodies and our spirits are all connected, and so when one part is not going well, we start seeing problems in all the parts. And so we really, for all those reasons, we want teachers to be doing well. So, let me get to try. <laughs> So this part, um, it may have been one of you, I don't know, but last year at the CEA convention, I was in a session, I honestly don't remember exactly what the session was all about, um, but there was a woman at the end during questions, and she was talking about how she and coworkers would routinely cry on the way into school, and they'd, they'd arrive, stuff it all down, and then try to go on with the day. And so, obviously, as she said that, my social work senses start going up, and I'm casually trying to look to see who's, who's talking. Um, I didn't actually get to see who it was, because it was a big crowd of people between us. Um, but what I was shocked to find instead is the whole room of people all smiling and nodding, and like, yep, that's how teaching is. Like, everybody was kind of in the same boat. And I, honestly, being new with my very first convention, I was shocked, I was horrified, because that's not how it should be. It's not okay. And so you really kind of brought the forefront. I knew I was at school to help with student mental health, but teacher mental health became suddenly very important for me too. And so as I was thinking through that, of course we all have bad days now and then, right? So certain times of the year are harder than others. 
getting started, end of the year, exams, right? All the things. There's hard times, there's hard days, there's hard kids. So if occasionally you're crying on the way home or, you know, just have a bad day, yes, that's a normal part of coping. Routinely pre-crying on the way to school, that's not a healthy part of coping. And so there's a lot of things that need to be done with that outside of what we can do. Well, that's another talk come next year. <laughs> um, but there are some things that we ourselves can do too. And so the first thing I want to say is let's not leave each other to struggle alone. So if you would, if you would raise your hand if you have at least one new staff person at your school from the last couple years. Okay. Pretty much everybody. Keep <coughs> your hands down for this part and think inside yourself. Do you personally, you personally, know how they're doing? Whether they're in your department, whether they're one of your good work friends or not, do you know how they're doing? And your other colleagues you've been with for a while, do you know how they're doing? Have you checked in? Are you supporting them? Are you coming together in those ways? Before I came to South, I was a social worker at um, a large hospital in Grand Rapids, and I was there for 20 years, and I loved it. It was amazing. The work was tremendously difficult. I saw things and did things that were super difficult. Um, but one of the things that made me love it was one of my coworkers. We were in it together 100%. If one of us had to stay late, the other one often stayed late too, so that we could both hopefully get out a little bit sooner. It was fantastic. Unfortunately, once COVID hit, she had to go on a medical leave of absence and was gone for a little over nine months. And so I was there kind of alone. And I did not feel well supported by my supervisor, by other people that worked within the hospital system. And you can kind of see what happened. Well, Christian got a new social worker. Good <laughs> 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 so, for some people. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is when my coworker came back to work after I was gone, she quit too. The support wasn't there. And so that's why in our schools and the systems we represent now, like, let's do it together. Let's support each other. Let's be in it 100%. So that way, when people leave, if they leave, might I add, maybe, if, we could hope, that when they do, they say, that was the best place I ever worked. The staff had my back 100%. We were in it together. A hard choice to leave if they would even decide to. The other thing, the second part of that, so I'm going to put a little pressure on you. If it's you that's struggling, then speak up, right? If I'm in my office, I'm dying, I'm overwhelmed, but I don't say anything to my principal, don't say anything to my coworker, don't say anything to anybody, <coughs> it kind of is my fault. Like, right, not the situation per se, but if I don't feel well supported, but I'm not reaching out for that either, then how are people going to help if they don't know? And so I would encourage you to reach out to someone that you trust at school. The other piece of that is as more and more people speak out, then that's when we start to see, right, when bigger systems need to change, whether maybe it's your whole department, maybe it's your whole school, maybe it's what we're seeing now in the profession. So again, we want to speak out when those things are happening. Okay. Um, so again, be a little vulnerable. We're going to move on to two just kind of general mental health sort of concepts that I think are helpful in understanding all of mental health. The first that mental health exists on a continuum. So often we think we're depressed or we're not, we're okay or we're not. And in reality, we can have mental illness to the point that it severely impacts our daily functioning, 
the kind of middle ground is actually sort of that languishing, a word for my ELA friends, right? Kind of that meh, sort of not really doing well, not doing terrible, just sort of meh in the middle. The opposite end actually is flourishing, is mental wellness. It's not just not having depression. It's more than that, it's growth, it's doing well. And so that is one thing we want to keep in mind. Also knowing it's normal to move around. Some of us tend to kind of end up one way or the other, more often than not, but it is very common to move around. The second part um, comes with a story. So about six years ago, my mom passed away. And um, during that time, it was obviously really difficult. Not only all the life stuff that was happening with our family, but I had kids, I was in grad school, I had all the other mom stuff of groceries and cleaning and all the things. And I'll tell you, it was fine, it was fine. Everything was fine until it wasn't. Because one night we were having this, it's important, we were having spaghetti for dinner. And it was one of those nights that was scarf the food and go. Came back a few hours later, had not had time to pick up anything yet, scraping the plates. While we were going, it was congealed. I'm telling you, it was not coming off or anything. And that became the thing that pushed it over the edge. The sobbing, ugly tears in the sink. My whole family was frozen, like, what's going on? Mom's freaking out about spaghetti. <laughs> what's happening? But it's not the spaghetti, right? Not really. I had a girl at South tell me the first year I was there, she started crying in class because she dropped her pencil. So, again, right? It's not the pasta, it's not the pencils. And if you're pre-crying or you're having those kinds of reactions, it's time to do some work on your mental health. And that is kind of the second concept. In all honesty, the window of tolerance is a little dated, but I still like it because even my kids at school totally get this idea. If you think of it that we each have sort of this window or sort of like a container inside of all the stuff we can handle. And as long as it fits, we got it. It's going all right. And sometimes it's filled up with big things like trauma. Sometimes it's little day-to-day -day annoyances. But all of it starts to get packed in. And unless we're taking active steps to be able to scoop stuff out and really kind of handle those things, it gets too full. And then, with pastas and pencils and all the things, a tiny, tiny thing can push it over. And when it pushes over, it tends to go one way or the other. Either up into that highly emotional, reactive, distressed kind of reactions, or we go down into the depressed, lethargic, numb, shut down, one way or the other, so it'll come in at Alright, so anxiety. I've already talked actually about anxiety, depression, and burnout, because those are probably the most common three things that I'm seeing. Um, I'm going to catch up with my notes. So I was doing so good, I didn't even need them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so anxiety. At its very core, really all anxiety is, is our body's instinctive way of responding to stress or perceived danger. When I say perceived danger, I do mean perceived, right? Sometimes we think there's a threat, our brain perceives it, but it's really not something threatening. Sometimes we perceive threat or danger because there's threat or danger. And so, you know, our brain, though, is still trying to sort all that stuff out. The primary purpose of that, though, is to keep us alive. So really, at the end of the day, it's a good thing because our brain is doing its best to keep us alive. So some stress and anxiety is good. Like, if you have a test coming up, if you have a job interview coming up, please don't go, stay in your positions, um, right? Or 
presentation at CEA convention. If you practice or you do something to help relieve that stress and is proportional to the situation, it's a good thing because it helps you do better and it helps you prepare. And then obviously once the stress is away, that sort of stress response cycle is completed, we feel better, we can kind of move on. The other way it helps us is when there really is real danger. In those situations, our brains only really have fractions of seconds to respond. And so if that thinking part of our brain stays engaged, we consider all the ways we can handle the situation, it's too late. You're hit by a bus, you're eaten by a tiger, like that poor kid, I don't know if you can see it, hit in the face with a baseball bat, right? Like sometimes we just gotta duck. Don't think, we just gotta duck. And so, right, when our brains are doing what they're supposed to, it protects us. And so again, the cool thing God did was create our brain so that instead that thinking part that's really slow will shut down. And the reactive sort of fight, flight, and freeze part takes over to help us just react the way we need to. And so it is really a protective thing. A lot of times our brains get it right. It helps us, it protects us, it does what it needs to. Where we start to get in trouble is when either that fight, flight, freeze part gets stuck, or it gets overreacted, reactive, or it keeps responding to things that aren't truly threats. And that's where we start to get into some of the chronic anxiety and some of the problems that we can see functioning. When I'm working with someone about anxiety, there's really two parts we're trying to do. One is to manage that physiological response that's happening. Um, and then also to also consider sort of those thinking errors that are happening. Sometimes we're personalizing things, we're taking things really kind of black or white thinking. There's a ton of different thinking errors that we do. But I find most often, until we can learn to regulate sort of the physiological part of what's happening, we can't think about our thinking if we can't think. Well, that makes sense, right? We can't think about our thinking if we can't think. And so we got to get that physiological part calmed down, and then we can start to work on other ways of kind of managing anxiety. All right, here's some symptoms you can look at for a second. One thing you'll probably notice is really only one is about feeling anxious and worried. All the rest of the symptoms are more of those somatic, physical kinds of things. Um, again, this is just for generalized anxiety. There's a ton of different kinds of anxiety, but we can't get So depression is actually a mood disorder, and as anxiety is more than just feeling worried, depressed is more than just feeling sad. And so this one, we're just going to go right over to the symptoms, because there's more. Um, but as you kind of look around, you can see some of those different ones about um, whether it's low self-esteem, whether it's um, behavioral kinds of things. Again, we see problems with concentration and focus. All those things start to really kind of take over when we're feeling depressed. And again, these, I should say, are not for you to self-diagnose, but just be aware if you're noticing these things. It's important to pay attention. Um, and so, whereas with anxiety, we're trying to re-regulate, calm, slow things down, slow brain waves, slow our heart rate, with anxiety, we're calming. With depression, we actually want to do the opposite. We want to re-engage. We want to build back up. We want to kind of get back active and back into things. And we are going to talk about ways to do that, I promise. That might be why you're here. Um, but first, I do want to talk about burnout. Um, and the reason I put it here is because a lot of the symptoms of burnout are the same as symptoms as depression. 
In fact, the International Journal of Stress Management did a study and found that 90% of participants who scored high in burnout also met clinical criteria for being diagnosed with depression. 90% is a lot, right? I'm not a math person, and even I'm that, right? not my correlation between the two. Um, and the reason it's important to know that connection there is because a lot of the things we do to combat burnout don't actually work long term. So doing fun things, taking time off, switching jobs, obviously those are all healthy in their own way sometimes. And so I'm not saying, I mean, take your time off. You deserve it, take it. Um, but when we're doing those things specifically for burnout, that's where we get into trouble because take time off, for instance. The research shows generally within two to three weeks of returning to work, symptoms come back. And so if we're not kind of managing those underlying depressive symptoms and issues, then we're really not kind of getting to the root of burnout. So I think one thing to mention here, burnout generally-ish, I hate generalizing, but we have to for time's sake, um, comes from two things, unachievable expectations and unceasing demands. And so when we put those things together, we just can't keep doing that. And obviously, what did COVID teaching give us? Unachievable expectations, unceasing demands. As schools get more and more short-staffed, what are we gonna get more of? Unachievable expectations, unceasing demands. So no wonder we're all feeling burned out, and we're kind of at this point where people are struggling. Um, the other piece I think that's important to know is that one of the major symptoms of burnout is cynicism. And by that I mean feelings of decreased empathy, resentfulness, feeling angry towards the work, feeling angry towards co-workers. And so again, when we talked earlier about sort of that culture of care within our schools, this also is why that's so important because we're helping people get through burnout. Um, in fact, one of the main ways of combating burnout isn't self-care, it's actually caring for each other. And so this is a really important aspect of something we need to be really thinking about. Um, now, having said that, when we have widespread burnout in a school, in a profession, right, those are bigger issues. We need system changes, we need policy changes, we need like bigger things. However, what self-care and care for each other, good mental health helps, is gets by in the meantime. While those changes are happening, while pandemics are resolving, you know, helps us get us through, even if it's not the ultimate big, big solution. Okay, this is just a breather slide, mostly because I figured I would need water by now, which I actually have to earn. <laughs> and I liked it and it didn't fit anywhere else. So. <laughs> All right, so what can we do? Like, and by we, I do mean we, because right, like I said, there's bigger systems issues, there's other things that have got to change, but what can we do? And so the first thing here to talk about is brutal acceptance. So Joe Martino is a therapist local to us back in Grand Rapids, and I recently heard him speak, and one of the things he talked about was brutal acceptance. And by that, I, what it's not is sort of an, oh well, nothing I can do, defeatist sort of attitude. It's not that. What acceptance is about is how so often we spend time and energy worrying about, talking about, fighting about things we cannot control. And when we're doing that over and over, we tend to lose time, obviously. We lose emotional <coughs> energy, we lose physical energy because we're fighting and fighting and fighting something that's not going to change because we don't control it. 
And so one, step one, about how we're gonna manage our mental health is we're going to ruthlessly decide what we control and what we don't. We're not gonna waste energy on the stuff we don't. Right, we're gonna do what we can, control what we can, and then let the results be the results and move forward. Because it just, it's honestly the waste of energy. Nobody has time for that right now. So, right, keep moving. So, second thing is sleep.
With severe depression and severe anxiety, it can get to the point where it's so debilitating, people are just <coughs> shut down and can't even function at all. And so in those kind of situations, figuring out what's the next step you can take. Maybe you can't walk for 10 minutes. If you haven't been out of the house in three days, maybe it's just stepping out on your porch. If you can't take a shower because that's too much, maybe it's just sitting on the shower floor and let the water hit you, right? Maybe it'll be brushing your teeth one time this week instead of one. Right. Whatever it is, that next step to start then taking another step and another step and another step to getting back engaged and sort of back on track. So breathing exercises. Um, my next favorite one. Actually, probably this is my favorite one, I would say. Um, there are a ton of different ones. So honestly, we're not going to spend time really talking about those. Quick Google search will give you lots of options. Um, but the thing about breathing that first of all, it accounts for 56% of our incoming energy. As babies, we come out with really good belly breathing. As adults, we get really bad at that. And we get a lot of just shallow chest breathing. So um, breathing exercises where we're really focused on that. Obviously, it helps in the moment for anxiety, but the more you practice, the better it is. So the more you can practice, keep going. Um, the second thing is, as we talked about with anxiety, how we're trying to calm brain waves, slow our heart rate, you know, unfortunately, we can't just zap in or just make our brains do it, but we can help control those things with our breathing. And so, again, God created these things really, really well for us. And so we want to take advantage of those abilities and using those to calm down anxiety and kind of regulate that physiological side of things. Um, again, there's a ton of different ones. One thing I've always kind of liked to do, because I am a Christian and faith is important to me, is I like to combine prayer and breathing. And so if I'm thinking about what do I need for God and from God in this moment, like maybe it's a little peace and calm So I look out at everybody, right? I'm thinking like, okay, God, breathe in your peace. Pause. <coughs> Let go of the rest. Right? Breathe in the peace. Let go of the rest. And so one of the teachers at my school actually um, showed me a book just a couple weeks ago. It's up here. It's kind of hard to see. So it's Breath as Prayer by Jennifer Tucker. And she takes little scripture verses and puts them into breathing exercises. I've used this with kids. I only got it like two weeks ago. And we've been using it. And they really like it. I found it really helpful. So if this is the kind of thing you're into, that's a really good book. Um, the other thing I think is really cool about breathing, it's like over and over research shows it works. But as people of faith, we know it does, right? Think about how we're made. Everything else in the world was created by God's words. He spoke it into being. We, though, he formed us, and then what did he do? He breathed his very breath in us. So those breaths, it's connections to God. And how powerful to think about, right, when we're overwhelmed and taking those deep breaths, reconnecting with our creator. It's a really powerful thing. The other piece I should mention here, the muscle relaxation techniques, again, lots of YouTube videos about how to go about doing that. And if we practiced it now, if it's hot, we're tired, we're going to be sleeping. So we're not going to do that today. Um, but just, again, this can be really helpful. Anxiety and depression and stress, it pulls us in. We get tense and tight and like aches and pains, muscle problems, all that stuff. Um, so these kind of exercises can be really helpful, particularly right before bed. If you have a hard time falling asleep. Um, but even just as the day goes on and you're kind of feeling that tension sort of increasing, it's a good way to kind of manage some of that. 
So this next one, again, seems simple, practice gratefulness. Um, what I really like about the slide though, practicing gratefulness doesn't mean pretending it's okay when it's not, but what it does mean is finding what's still good, even in the mess. And so each day, writing down a handful of things you're thankful for um, really can help because mental health, especially mental illness, tends to push us more to a scarcity mindset. And practicing gratefulness kind of brings out more of that abundant mindset um, that we're trying to, to get to there. Um, again, as Christians, we know this stuff works. Sciencey research says it does, but we know it does. How often in scripture does God command us and tell us, like, be thankful. This is the way he wants us to live. And so it does. It just helps get our mindset kind of in a healthy direction. So these are things people tend to kind of know about, like, right, counseling, medicine, all that stuff. Um, if you're looking for a therapist, I really like the Psychology Today website. It doesn't matter where you live, you put in your city. So in you know, whatever state, it doesn't matter. Um, it has a really cool search feature at the top. You can put in your information of what you're looking for and narrow down results for you. That could be a good fit. Um, the other thing is I did put on there to see your doctor. If these are new kinds of symptoms for you or you've never really been diagnosed, there are some medical conditions that can mimic mental health types of symptoms. And so before you're trying to breathe away a thyroid problem or something, be <laughs> 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 a lot of breathing zero success. Um, see your doctor, make sure those things are kind of taken care of first. Um, Alright, so. <laughs> I put this up here because, you know, honesty, self care is a term I've really, really come to dislike. Um, partly because, well, I don't know, two things, honestly. One is that it tends to blame people who are struggling instead of fixing bigger, bigger system problems and all that. Like, okay, you just go do some self-care, take a little time off, and like we don't have to do anything, you'll be fine. Um, it's not okay, that doesn't work that way. Um, but the other thing is, so, so often it's reduced to like, you know, take a, take a bubble bath, drink a Diet Coke, like you'll be fine, you know. Take more time to yourself, right? And that stuff just doesn't work long term. It can be a part of self-care. You know, sometimes we all need to sleep with Oreos. That's okay. <laughs> just eat. Like, right? So like, those things aren't bad. But when we think about self-care, it really needs to be something more. So what I want us to think of self-care is intentional behaviors and choices that take care of yourself in usually, think of the Oreos, right? Usually healthy ways for purposes of removing stuff from the container that we talked about earlier. So say that one more time. Intentional behaviors and choices that take care of yourself in usually healthy ways for the purpose of removing stuff from the container. So what we want to do here is really consider what does my body and my brain need right now? And often when I ask students that, they don't know because they're so disconnected, like they don't know. So I'm guessing maybe some of you don't know either. So, these are the things you're going to be thinking about. Do you need to move or do you need to be still? Do you need to be with people? Do you need to be on your own? Like, right, start kind of putting some of those things together and you'll get some good indications. The other thing is, it doesn't technically matter what your choice is as long as you're making the choice, right? Like if you decide, you know what, what my brain and body needs is watching Netflix all day long. Okay, do it, but choose it. Because then at the end of the day, you get to bedtime and you're feeling like, okay, I 
did what I needed. This actually felt pretty good. Versus when we choose things by default. So right, we don't really make a choice. We lay on the couch and watch Netflix all day. We get to bedtime and we're like, man, I didn't do anything. I didn't wasn't productive. And I didn't really do what my brain and my body needed. I just kind of fell into something. So, right, so a little bit of personal honesty, a little bit of insight to kind of decide what it is that you need in those moments. Because I, I think kind of the big part there of self-care. The other thing is setting and keeping boundaries based on values. So when we know what our values are, we know what our priorities are, and we put really tight boundaries around those things, it helps us make decisions. Because right every time we say yes to something, it's no to something else. And maybe a good thing, right? Equally good things, but we have to choose. Also, no's are because we want to say yes to something else. And so when we know our values, we know our priorities, it gets a little easier to kind of decipher those things. And that's, I think, a big part of self-care too, so we're not getting overextended. We're not saying too many yeses, we're not saying too many noes. It all kind of fits together. The other last thing about self-care, and we're going to move on, because like I said, not my favorite part. Um, but one thing COVID showed us, we need more than our one go-to thing. Right? What happens when your thing is working out and gyms shut down and you couldn't go? Or I see with students, there's an injury or something that happens, and suddenly it's not available anymore. So your go-to thing is good. Keep those, do those. But we also want to make sure we're helping ourselves holistically. So we're looking at all the areas of our life. We're finding those ways of caring for ourselves in all the different spheres. I only put one sphere on there, but there's multiple spheres. <laughs> Just realizing that was not a probably good layout slide. All right, faith and mental health. This part I like a lot better. So we're going to spend the last part of our time here, which, okay, can't close, but we're good. Um, so two parts of mental health and faith that I see most often. One is when, as Christians, we relegate mental health to purely faith problems. And I think we need to be very, very careful about that. I had a student last year who was talking to me about feeling really depressed and really overwhelmed, and she finally got brave enough and told a friend, and her friend said to her, did you even pray about it? And it, I, it was not a, I'm so sorry, let me pray with you. It was definitely a, well, did you even pray about it? Because if you did, then obviously it would be better by now. Um, it was kind of blaming her for not having good enough faith to get over the depression. I also know an elderly woman, um, this is so sad to me, she has such high anxiety, she can barely leave her house, but she won't take medication, she won't see a counselor, because she thinks that it's purely a spiritual problem, and if she can just overcome Satan and trust enough, then it'll go away and she'll be okay. And I think it's so bizarre to me, probably because I work in mental health, but also, if we don't do that with anything else. If we have a broken femur, we go to the doctor and we get help. But yes, we pray for healing. I'm not saying that's not a part of it, but we get help. The other piece is, like, let's think of diabetes, right? We don't just tell people, trust, have faith, like, it'll get better, we'll pray about it. Like, yes, we do those things, but we also recognize a part of the body's not working like it's supposed to, and we get treatment and we do things for that. Um, so, same thing with mental health. If the brain isn't working like it should, whether that's because of the misbalanced chemicals or the effects of trauma, the effects of 
lots of different things that happen to us in our lives, we can't simply say that it's just a spiritual problem. There's people struggling, there's people dying, and that's not okay. Because when we insinuate those things, we keep people struggling and suffering. That's not okay. Now, having said that, the flip side of it, <laughs> so no, I don't think mental health is purely a spiritual issue. However, I do know that Satan is the father of lies, right? And he uses our emotions, he uses our mental health to distort truth, to keep us stuck, to lead us to some really dark places. And I know sometimes those things can lead people to faith crisis. And so they start wondering, like, I've done all the things, but it's still bad. Like, does God care? Can he even help me with this? You know, you start to just get really frustrated. And like I said, it can cause a bit of a faith crisis. Those are hard questions. I don't know. I don't know why when you've done all the things, it's still bad. What I can say is power the word yet. That's a really strong and powerful thing. So we want to hold on to that hope. But the other thing I know and I think we all believe, right? Scripture is the word of God. And we can trust what it says. And so if we look in scripture, right? God parted the sea for the Israelites. So we can know he can make a way through depression. He calmed, like Jesus, calmed the seas he, in the boat for the disciples. He can calm anxiety, right? These are things he absolutely can do. Sometimes he does in really miraculous ways. Sometimes it takes a lot of hard work with therapy and medications and all those kind of things too. Final thoughts. No matter what God uses to make it better, and even if it is something we struggle with for most of our lives, I just want to remind you, God is with you. We, again, see scripture examples all the time. How the hard part stays, but God stays with us. And that's the piece we really want to hang on to. In fact, he promises over and over to not leave us, not forsake us. In Hebrews 6, it talks about the certainty of God's promises. And verse 19 actually says that we have that hope as an anchor for our soul. And so if you struggle with mental health, hopefully as I said at the beginning, this hasn't been an affront to your soul, um, but what I do hope it has been is a reminder of the anchor for your soul. Right? We want to anchor down to what we know is true. Depression, anxiety, all of that, again, it distorts truth. And so we want to use people around us, we want to use scripture, we want to use all those things to really anchor down to what we know is true, so that when we're in the middle of the hard, we can hang on to that. The other thing is, right, we want to look up. We want to look up to Jesus. When we look backwards, in depression, in regret, and all that, that's not helpful. And when we're looking forward, and with anxiety, and overwhelm, and all of that, also not helpful. So right, we want to anchor down, eyes up. Because God is there, He's faithful, and I know that He will be with you. So, let me pray with you a minute, and then we have questions with you now. God, thank you so much. You've created our bodies, our minds, in such amazing ways. We thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for the schools that we represent, and for all these colleagues that you have placed here with us for such a time as this. We thank you that we can be your hands and feet as we support each other. We ask, Lord, that you bless and keep us. Keep us close to you. Strengthen us for the rest of the year ahead. And in your name, we lift this prayer. Amen. Amen. Questions, comments, concerns? Or we want to get out the heat. <laughs>